Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Morning shot. Good morning. Welcome to Morning Shot. I'm Lin Lee. Rescue mission successful against all odds earlier this week. And I'm, of course, talking about those four children who were found alive after spending 40 days out in the thick of the Amazon jungle. That caps a long search by hundreds of soldiers and indigenous scouts to locate the little ones. After the small plane they were travelling on with their mother crashed into the rainforest. But without the help of any adults, how did four children survive this traumatic ordeal in the dense forest on their own? To help us wrap our heads around that, we're joined by Zhang Tingjun, co-founder of Into the Wild, a startup that specialises in training children to survive in real-life wilderness emergency simulations. Hello Tingjun, great to have you with us. Hey, Lily. Thanks Hello. for having me. Yeah, first off, we're talking about children aged 13, 9, 4, and 1. Now, clearly, it sounds almost like mission impossible, even for us adults, let alone young children. So how inhospitable would you assess the Amazon rainforest to be? I mean, I think, to be honest, when we think about inhospitability or how inhospitable an area is, it really is a question of what we're accustomed to, right? Uh, and how we have grown up, what we've been exposed to, what mm-hmm. we've been trained in. Uh, and I think for these kids, the environment probably to them wasn't that inhospitable. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge really would have been, again, there are four children, right, without mm-hmm. any adults there to assist them. And if you think about the logistics even of trying to travel, find food or water, for example, mm-hmm. with a one-year-old, uh, I mean, that in and of itself, you know, a one-year-old wouldn't even be able to walk, right? Yes. Um, so I think there were additional challenges like those but I don't know that they would have found really the setting they were in to be that inhospitable to them if that's actually how they've been raised or what they're used to. Just to tie in your experience here, in your previous role with Mercy Relief, you've personally witnessed people struggling to survive post-disaster after the 2015 Nepal earthquake. Now of course that's a different setting but if you were to juxtapose the two different cases, what parallels are you seeing and what can you draw between how people try to stay alive in what we would consider harsh environments? Yeah, you know, I think that at the end of the day, as human beings, right, we all still need the same basic things to survive. Uh, and whether that is in a cold or hot climate, you know, whether you're in, you know, the Amazon rainforest or in Nepal after the earthquake, mm-hmm. it's, it's going to come down to the basics like water, food, shelter, uh, you know, and really keeping your body at a core temperature uh, that you're able to survive on, right? It's not too hot, it's not too cold. Uh, so I think at the end of the day, those are the same basic things that whether if we were to come in, let's say with Mercy Relief, we would be looking to provide aid. Um, you know, and relief to survivors on the ground or in the case of these children lost in the forest, these will be the same priorities that they would definitely have sought out first in order to have survived for that long. So the children's indigenous heritage has been credited for the survival skills. I know you're a specialist in training children to survive in real-life wilderness emergency simulations. So how much might their heritage have played in their survival as compared to those of us who grew up in a modern city environment and those kids that you are training? Yeah, I think it would have made a huge difference. I think that 
at the end of the day, you know, when we do travel to places, the first people we would turn to would be local experts, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and when you talk about these forests, these indigenous people, these tribes, they are the experts. They are the people that live off the land and they have for generations. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the skill that they may have in hunting or in sourcing food or locating water, for example, building shelters, all of these things from a young age are skill sets that they would have picked up, that they would have watched and emulated their parents or grandparents doing as well. Mm -hmm. So it would have been very much a part, I think, of their core DNA. Um, and so it definitely would have put them at a big advantage in that environment. I think if you look at our kids, at least here in Singapore, or, you know, who grow up in cities, mm -hmm. they would have definitely struggled in a setting like that. Most of the exposure they have, even if they come for camp, is what, a couple of hours, even if it's an intensive program, a week-long program, versus from a very young age, every single day, it's a part of life. It's a mm. part of living for you, right? So yeah. I think if you were to take those kids and you put them in a city, they would find that inhospitable versus <laughs> finding themselves in a jungle. Yeah. Okay, diving into some specifics here. The children were said to have survived eating cassava flour and seeds and that some familiarity with the rainforest fruits were also key. So when thrown into such an environment, how would you tell what can be eaten and what might be poisonous and where could they have gotten fresh water? Yeah, I think when you talk about water, I mean, the first things that you would do is collect rainfall, mm. right? Uh, and the other is if you can find a running stream. So you want to avoid stagnant pools of water where more bacteria may have formed, you know, or where animal feces, if it's in mm. stagnant water, hasn't actually been washed further downstream. Mm. Uh, what you do after that, at least in a setting, let's say you were a city kid in an environment like that, you use something like a sock, you know, to filter first the bigger pieces of debris or whatever is out of the water. And then again, we would definitely recommend you boil that water. So I think it would be a couple of ways, right? So one is collecting it and the other is finding running streams and sources of water. Mm -hmm. uh, when you talk about food, um, definitely your local knowledge, again, is going to be key because there's no... Uh, science to it where we could say oh you know you go into this forest anything that's red you don't eat right so it, it doesn't work like that but as a general rule of thumb most insects uh, would be safe to eat your crickets uh, even large ants uh, scorpions you just chop off the tail you know the, the stinger um, same thing with worms mm. um, most of your birds you could eat and non-venomous snakes Generally, we would just recommend avoiding anything that has bright colors. So that usually mm. is a sign of, you know, something that's venomous or dangerous. Same mm. with anything that's hairy, like a hairy spider yeah. or spiny. Um, and again, we would always recommend to boil what you can. Yeah, I guess in such situations, it's probably survival instincts and common sense, I suppose. In case you've just joined us, we're speaking with Zhang Tingjun, co-founder of Into the Wild on survival in harsh environments. Tingjun, in that rainforest setting, what could have been some of the potential threats? What would you say are the most critical factors to look out for aside from food? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people assume in a, in a jungle setting like that, it's the wild animals, you know, it's uh, that you're looking out for. But honestly, it's, it's going to be the smaller things like mosquitoes, you know, it's mm -hmm. going to be slippery rocks, right? Fallen trees that the kids would have had to, you know, climb over or navigate, you know, in order to find water. It would be exposure to things like the sun, right? Or to extreme cold and the toll that would take on the body, as well as, of course, dehydration in the event that they could not um, locate any water sources. So in terms of your dangers in the jungle, I mean, those are a few, but I think it's just really this idea that sometimes it's the little things that get you twisting your ankle uh, while trying to navigate some rocks could mean that you are no longer able to journey any further, right? To mm -hmm. find a way out of that situation. 
So we were talking about instincts earlier. In terms of the human body and our biological instincts, for how long can you possibly survive in a more extreme environment than what you're used to? I think it really will come down to a question of what is available to you on mm. on scene and how resourceful you are as well. Because again, if you're able to find food, you're able to find water, you're able to build shelter, and you're able to keep your body temperature, uh, you know, close enough to a healthy 37 degrees, you could actually survive for a very long time, mm. right? And we've had many reports of people who found themselves cast away on a deserted island somewhere or in other extreme situations who've managed to survive even for years. Mm-hmm. So I think it's how adaptable one is, resourceful they are, right? And how they're able to overcome that situation. Um, and whether or not in the first place there's actually anything for them to work with where they are. In the middle of the desert, for example, it would be much more of a challenging in terms of a harsh environment than a jungle, which actually provides a lot. What other tips can you tell us on how best we should react when thrown into a place that's completely out of what we would consider an environment that humans can survive easily? I think the first thing I'd recommend is really just to stop. You know, and even as an acronym, I would say it's like S is for stop. And then Mm. it's to think, observe, and then plan. A lot of times people panic and they just immediately start going down the wrong track, for example, or moving away from the site of, in this place, a plane crash. Right? But the recommendation really would be, if it were a case of a plane crash, it's really to stay near the site of the crash. It is much easier for rescuers, even by air, to spot an aeroplane on the ground, for example, as opposed to an individual that is tracking their way through a jungle. Right? And then the mm-hmm. other is just to take that time to think and look around you and observe. You know, If you're lost in the jungle, it wasn't a result of a crash. Are you able actually to look for evidence of the direction from which you came? Mm-hmm. Perhaps you know, broken branches or something that you recognize. Uh, and it's really then to plan. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, what time of day is it? What would you need? Are you able to get out? Are you not? And what can you do, right? And mm-hmm. then after you have a plan, then to act on that so that you're not you know, just kind of running around and actually losing your bearings even more mm-hmm. uh, and panicking. Hmm. It's very useful information. Thanks so much for your time today. Not at all. Thanks for having me. We've been speaking with Zhang Tinjun, co-founder of Into the Wild, a startup that specializes in training children to survive in real-life wilderness emergency simulations. Stay with Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.